0: at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders.
1: Hey everybody, Matt Reister with the CC Podcast Conversations, and we are just getting ready to finish up the CPE Christian Products Expo in Lexington, Kentucky, thanks to Joyce Barbati, the owner of TJ's Christian Bookstore in Cedar Falls, who is on our board of directors, who recommended that we come down here because we could get some great content. And we've gotten some great content, wouldn't you say, Andrew?
2: Very much so, a lot of stuff. Very wide range of interviews here. Uh, something for everybody, I think. Um, I think, yeah, this this interview uh, and, and a lot of others, there's gonna be a lot of people enjoying this.
1: When everything's said and done, I think I will have done about 18 hours of interviews in three days or Two less. Days. Two days and you've been yeah. producing them. we got, a lot of them are up already, so kudos to you and Terry for helping us out with social media. Today's interview, or this interview right now, is gonna be with Dr. Craig Von, Craig von Buzic, and he's a Christian historian. Oh, yeah. He's written books on Ulysses S. Grant, and on President Truman, and other things. This was a great, great conversation. I love this conversation, and can't wait to listen to it again. Guys, sharp, and he's coming at history from a biblical worldview. But all kinds of things we can learn from what he's written.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm as a his, I was a history major, so uh, history geek sort of fits me here too. And and I, I, he was he was a nice guy to talk to, and I'm really interested to hear what he has to say because, like you said, he's biblically solid, and a lot of times you kind of see uh, historians do what they can to discredit the Bible or discredit Jesus or, or that. And uh, so to hear hear his perspectives as somebody who has solid faith, but also is, is an academic historian, a, a, a serious historian, uh, that's, that's going to be great to hear.
1: He feels called, he said in this interview, to write the stuff he writes because it's from the perspective of truth to combat the lies that people are being taught about history, Absolutely, which is great stuff. He also was hoping to get down to Mary Todd Lincoln's childhood home, which is like a block and a half from here. Yeah,
2: it's, it's almost next door. He's
1: going to record a podcast. i got to at least walk out there and look at it.
2: Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, you got a break coming up. You should be able to scoot yeah. over there quick.
1: Anyway, Craig, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. And to everyone listening, enjoy this. You're going to love it. And thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, Matt Reister here with the CC Podcast Conversations. I'm at the Christian Products Expo in Lexington, Kentucky and I'm with Dr. Craig Von Buzik. Tell everybody how you know how to say your name right.
3: Well, it's very simple. Uh, you know, the Vaughn part is easy, but then the second part is a little more tricky. So I tell them, if you drink bad booze, you say ick. So Vaughn, booze, ick. Yeah, so for <laughs> our audience, he's not a teetotaler. He, it's only bad booze that
1: makes you sick. That's exactly right. doesn't yeah. make sick. Well,
3: yeah, We're not going to get into that theological question <laughs> <laughs> until later at the pub. <laughs> 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 I
1: love it. So uh, this probably isn't your first CPE.
3: Oh no, I was at the very first one, and I've been at all of them ever since. So when, How uh, yeah. long ago was that? Well, it was the the year after uh, CBA kind of went under. I don't and, know what that is. Uh, it's the Christian Book Association, and they had the uh, their big uh, festival or, or you know conference every year. It was. 10 times as big as what this one is. Wow. And then the Internet just killed Christian bookstores. Yeah. And it just dwindled down to almost nothing. And so they went out of business. They went bankrupt and then months uh, kind of stepped in. And they may have been doing CPE before that, but I had never heard about it. And uh, I heard about their Christian product expo. I went the first year and I was like, oh, well, valiant effort. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well done. Uh, but every year it just keeps getting better and better, and Good. this year it's you know really strong. So how many so years has it been going? I, I've been involved for the last
1: four or five years. Okay. yeah. And so have you been to National Religious Broadcasters? Yes. That's kind of
3: where Christian communicators go, a lot of authors. Right. So you have uh, on that side, you have a lot of radio, podcasters, TV, and so forth. And authors come because they want to be involved in all of that. Here on this side, it's more book and products. And so authors come here because they want to be a part of that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we went to NRB for the first time this last spring as presenter, as we had a booth mm-hmm. uh, to promote our podcast, but also get some great content. Yeah. And then we've got a board member for our ministry in Northeast Iowa who owns the local bookstore in town, Christian bookstore. And she recommended that we come here because we get a lot of great content similar to what we got at NRB yeah and uh, man, we've just been rapid fire doing interviews, and I've been, I've been looking forward to talking to you. Oh, sweet. It's, I got, I've been talking a bunch of women,
3: so it's just good to talk to another guy, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you get a lot of that here, which, you know, I'm not going to say it's a strategy, but you know, it's, it's for a single guy, it's not so bad, right? <laughs> Last night at dinner, I was the only guy, <laughs> and there's like 20 women, and I'm thinking, you know, not a bad way to spend a night. <laughs>
1: I love it. So um, let's just start with your faith. How, how did you come to a place where you became a believer? Did you grow up in it or did you come to it later?
3: Yeah, I grew up in it. And uh, it's fun because right here in my briefcase, I carry with me a puppet. And it is actually plastic little puppet because I had prayed. My parents brought home. They would bring home these from uh, you know prayer meetings and things, uh, these Christian comic books. And this was in the early 1970s. And they also brought home tracts, you know, the little little Bible tracts. Yeah. And one of them was from Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was called the Five-Fingered Glove. And back then it was paper. Yeah. And it was the four spiritual laws, and then the thumb was the prayer of salvation. Okay. And so just by myself, at the leading of the Holy Spirit, he wow. had me, you know, pick this up. It was sitting on the table, and I laid there with half of my body in the dining room and half of my body in the living room, reading this tract. And right there, I prayed the prayer of salvation when I was, I think I was seven years old. Wow. So fast forward 30 years, and I was serving on the executive board of the Internet Evangelism Coalition. And one of the major contributors was Campus Crusade for Christ. And we were at their national headquarters in Orlando, and I told them what I just told you. And I said, do you still have the book? Because I don't have one. And he said, no, but we have this puppet. And it's the, it's the four you know spiritual laws on the one side of the puppet and then the thumb is the prayer of salvation. So you show the kids this little puppet and they gave me one and since then I've carried it every day. In That's my incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. So when did you come to the point where you decide you want to study history? I've always loved history. Since uh, early in my life we went to Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg oh, in yeah. Virginia, which is Crazy you off grow the charts. Up? I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, right on Lake Erie. Yep. And so we went on vacation, you know, to there, and then we went to Virginia Beach and all that. And uh, I was like, "Whoa, this is really interesting." And right around the same time, uh, there was a musical that came out, and my older sister was big time into Broadway musicals, and this musical was called 1776. And she brought home the record, and we played it over and over again. And then they made a movie of it that during the bicentennial, they showed again and again on TV. I fell in love with that. It was all about the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a very funny but also poignant way. It's a great movie. It's still out there. You can get it. Uh, And between those two things, I was hooked. Wow. Yeah. So uh, how did you
1: go through school? You got a PhD. Yeah, Doctor of Ministry, actually. Oh, a D-Min.
3: Yeah. Okay. So uh, what was your path? through school? Well, I actually started, I I always knew that I would be a storyteller. And so I started uh, with a focus on TV production and public speaking for my undergrad and uh, Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania. I have to say in Pennsylvania, (laughs) so people don't think I went to, you know, yeah, the the British uh, Isles. Yeah, no, this is named after the Scottish great university. So Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. And then I ended up, uh, I was involved in many different ministry endeavors. And then in my early thirties, I just felt like I needed to finalize my formal ministry training. So I went to Regent University in Virginia Beach and I got there and I wanted to do a writing class for an elective and I got permission to do so. And a real long story, but I got into a class that I shouldn't have gotten into. And the reason was that they had scheduled a class for graduation. That was at the same time, so all the people that would have taken this class couldn't take it, and I got in, which was really a wonderful thing, because my professor was a former New York Times editor and reporter named Bob Slosser, who helped start CBN News, and then he was president of Regent University, and he was my professor, and he kept saying, make writing your ministry. Not just a, a, you know, something that you do on the side or something you do for a job, make it your ministry. Hmm. and That really hit me in my heart and I found out that they did a joint degree, Divinity and Journalism, and so that's what I did for my master's program. Got hired at CBN as a writer, then I went on staff at CBN.com, and then I went back to do the Doctor of Ministry later. At Regent? At Regent. Yeah. So when you're at CBN, tell us about what you did there. Well, I started out as a staff writer. Christian Christian Broadcasting Network. Yeah. They're the ones that do CBN uh, CBN News and 700 Club. Is that like uh, Paul... That's Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson. His, he's now retired, but his son Gordon Robertson That's right. is the CEO. I was thinking of TBN. Yeah. That's the Paul whoever... Yeah, Paul. Yeah, the, the other... That are the Crouch. Crouch yeah. Crouch, yeah. Yeah, so at any rate, um, so I worked at CBN uh, first as a staff writer and then... Um, I moved over to be the spiritual life producer for CBN.com uh, which is one of now one of the top 10 religious websites in the world and so then I became programming director and then ministries director so I worked there for a dozen years. Wow. Cool. As I also saw in your in your bio you're doing some work with Focus on the Family. I am now, yeah, I'm now digital content manager. Uh, for focus on the family part of their website. So you can do that from anywhere. Where are you at? I'm I'm in Colorado Springs. Okay. Yeah. Cool. They want me to be there. Yeah. <laughs> which I, I don't mind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah. I spent uh, seven years working for Iowa's Family Policy Council.
3: Oh wow. Okay. Which is now
1: called the Family Leader. Yeah. But those were all kind of the brainchild of Focus on the Family yeah, back in the day. Yeah. I remember. And yeah. Absolutely. So a lot of uh, touch points out there. And we. Do you remember a. Uh, Biblical worldview curriculum called the Truth Project? I do. Very, yeah. well, very, very much so. So I think in 2007, when we had our FPC convention, uh, Tackett was out there to kind of unfold that, unveil that for us, and trained all of us and excellent. We took that all back. We're actually going to run a group through the Truth Project this fall still. Oh, excellent. So it's got I'm some, glad to hear that. They, they did a new version of it that edited out uh, previous common who they don't want to have in there. So that happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we're excited to do it again.
3: Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, we hear that from time to time that there are still people who are doing it. Cool. Yeah.
1: So history, and now you've written, Are these? have you written more than these books or just these three?
3: Uh, no, I've written 15 books altogether. Uh, some are in print, some are out of print, some are ghostwritten and so forth. But yeah, these yeah. are uh, three of the most recent.
1: So are they all, uh, we've got two on Ulysses S. Grant and one on President Truman. Are all of your books uh, secular h- figures from history and
3: historical in nature? or Actually, I started out, uh, because of my ministry background, I started writing Bible teaching books. Okay. And I actually do have a Bible teaching book coming out later this year, Okay. Uh, which I haven't had for a dozen years, uh, or 10 years, uh, but it was in the drawer. And I said, you know, it's half finished. I'm going to finish this book. So that one's called Walking in Faith, The Peter, Paul, and Mary Principle, and that'll come out later this year from Elk Lake Books. Uh, But for the last 10 years, I've been focused primarily on history, biography, narrative nonfiction, and and that type of thing. Interesting. So, but you're kind of
1: highlighting these three
3: Yeah, these are the most recent, yeah. And the ones that, uh, the two books, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman, and The Rebirth of Israel, and Victor, the final battle of Ulysses S. Grant, are both, have been both highly uh, rated by the critics, uh, and they've won some pretty prestigious awards, so wanted to share about those. So Grant, um, you've obviously been to his boyhood home in Galena, Illinois. Uh, I have not been to Galena, that was his adult home. Oh, okay. Uh, I've been to his birthplace, which is uh, right on the river outside of Cincinnati, on the Ohio River. Oh, okay. uh, Point Pleasant and then Richburg is, just, is like a half hour from there and that's where he grew up where his father was a tanner and where he hated the smell of the animals being killed and the hides being tanned and that started a, a lifelong aversion to blood and whenever he ate steak, he had to have it almost like shoe leather wow. because he couldn't stand it. So he didn't like blood, he was okay in the midst of the battle, but before or after he didn't want to see like the surgeries or anything like that. Incredible. It actually made him sick, yeah.
1: So uh, Victor and Forward, what what are the
3: focuses of both of those? So Victor is the last two years in Grant's life, and many people are not aware that uh, they didn't have a presidential pension for U.S. presidents until after Harry S. Truman. And uh, the Congress had blocked Grant from receiving his uh, military pension. So here he is, two-term president, savior of the union, he has to go get a job. And so his son had partnered with a guy in a law firm on Wall Street called Grant Ward. And so they asked if President Grant would come on kind of like the salesman You know, go get all your rich and powerful friends to invest, which he did. And they were making a ton of money. It was very successful. The only problem was that their business partner, Ferdinand Ward, was running a giant Ponzi scheme the whole time. And so after a few years, everything collapsed. Grant thought he was worth more than a million dollars. And overnight, he had exactly $80 to his name. Uh, he did have some houses here and there, but you know, those are concrete a- assets, they're not liquid assets. He didn't have cash to buy groceries. It- it's a crazy story. And so not too long after that, uh, he finds out and is diagnosed with incurable throat cancer. Mm. So now he's bankrupt and dying, he's very concerned about his wife, Julia. How, she's, how is she going to be cared for after he dies? Many people had asked him to write his memoirs. He never wanted to do it because he was a good Methodist. And you don't brag about yourself and you don't go after your political enemies. And so he never did it. Plus, he thought he was a millionaire. I don't need to write a book. Now he needs money. And so he partnered with his good friend, a guy you might have heard of. His name was Mark Twain. And uh, (laughs) Mark Twain had his own publishing company. And uh, so they worked together. And actually, Grant did all the writing. Ron Chernow confirm that. Ron Chernow is the guy who wrote um, the uh, Hamilton book, which became mm. the big Broadway yeah, musical. Yeah. He then wrote a book about Grant, and he went to the Nash- National Archives and asked to see the manuscript of Grant's personal memoirs, because there were a lot of people who thought, oh, this must have been written by Twain, because it's just so good. Yeah. He pulled it out, and it was almost all in Grant's handwriting. The only thing that wasn't were Twain's little notations in the sidebars, not a lot, and then towards the end Grant was dying of cancer and was so weak that they hired a stenographer named Dawson, and you see Dawson's handwriting at the end. What but is was that lo- transcript worth? Uh, Oh, can you imagine? It's in the National Archives. With with (laughs) Twain's notes? And Grant's handwritten. That's insane. I know, crazy. So, you know, Chernow confirmed that, yes, this was all written by Ulysses S. Grant. He finished the memoirs four days before he died. Twain put it out for sale and it ended up being the second biggest seller of the 19th century, uh, second only to Uncle Tom's Cabin and made for his wife $450,000 in the 1880s, wow. which today would be worth more than $10 million. And that's why it's called, Grant. you know, Victor. Grant was a victor, and this was his final battle. Wow. Is Grant your favorite president? No, Lincoln. Lincoln is my favorite president. Grant is pretty high up there, uh, because Grant picked up the uh, banner of freedom that was dropped when Lincoln was assassinated. Johnson certainly did not pick up that. Uh, which is why he was almost impeached. Uh, But Grant very much did so. And, uh, you know, he pushed through two anti-KKK laws. He helped to establish the Department of Justice. He told his attorney general, destroy the KKK legally, and I will have the military, you know, tap them down on the violence side of things. And so amazingly, uh, before Grant uh, ever left the White House, the KKK uh, was defanged. And they obviously came back later, and there were other anti, you know, uh, segregationist groups and white supremacist groups. But the KKK was driven underground by Ulysses S. Grant. And then the final thing that most people don't know is that Grant pushed through the Civil Rights Act of 1875, uh, which had almost all the same provisions of what became the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the Supreme Court overturned it as unconstitutional in 1883. And so we had 80 years of Jim Crow and it, we had to go through all of the civil rights movement in order to have restored what Grant pushed through in 1875. That's incredible.
1: And, and we're still living with the consequences of those sins. I mean, yeah. can you imagine if we'd have sped the clock up 80 years? Absolutely. Yeah. That's incredible. But
3: we, you know, the country wasn't ready and in some ways, some people are not even ready today. Yeah. And that's why we do what we do, right? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's cool. Forward. Give me a synopsis of forward. Yeah. So forward, you know, I had um, put together this book and the publisher, Ironstream Media, said, we love this, uh, but, you know, we do a lot of curriculum, a lot of teaching. Can you put uh, Grant's uh, leadership principles in a list at the end of every chapter? And I said, well. That's mixing genres. It doesn't really work unless it's like a gift book or something like that. You know, people who know biography wouldn't like that. Yeah. And so they said, oh, okay. And so I was telling my daughter about this that night. And she said, well, dad, why don't you just write another book of Grant's leadership principles? So the next morning I emailed that to the publisher and they wrote back almost immediately, said, you won't believe this. We're sitting here with our publishing board saying why doesn't Craig just write another book about Grant's leadership principles? So I go through all the things that I learned in my two plus years of researching Grant and come up... For Victor? For Victor. Yeah. And I write this as a companion book. Wow. So does your daughter get some of the cut? She does. Absolutely. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, I'm really intrigued about this one. We've got uh, President Truman on the front with a... Israeli flag behind him, and the title of it is I am Cyrus. I asked you, I mean, it it makes it seem obvious that Truman said I am Cyrus, but I can't figure out why would Truman say I am Cyrus. Yeah. And then this says the
3: epic story of prophecy fulfilled. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, the subtitle is Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel. So most books that talk about the rebirth of Israel start in 1947 and covered 1948, and that's pretty much it. Uh, But I knew there was a much bigger story behind uh, the growth of what brought that about. That's the end of the beginning of Israel. But the beginning of the beginning started in the 1880s with the birth of the Zionist movement and the birth of Harry S. Truman. They were both born in that decade. And so I tell those two parallel stories, braiding it back and forth until we come together when Truman is president and he has to decide, will the United States recognize this new little teeny nation the size of New Jersey? Now, almost everybody in his, uh, of his advisors said, don't do it. The State Department 100% said, don't do it. There were only a handful, three or four advisors that told Truman, you should do that. And the reason was they were afraid of making the Arabs angry. And what does that mean? Well, we were, you know, the World War II was over and all of a sudden yeah. we were no longer allies with the Soviet Union. We, The Cold War had begun. And these uh, advisors in the State Department felt very strongly that we might be facing World War III against the Soviets and we needed Arab oil to fight that war. Wow. And so they said, this is the worst thing that you could do. Don't recognize Israel. It'll make the Arabs mad. It'll push them into the Soviet camp. Well, the thing about Truman was that he had coke bottom bottle glasses. Yeah. You remember those big thick oh, glasses yeah, where yeah. your eyes were magnified? His He was almost blind without these glasses. Joe Paterno had the same ones. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so when he was a child, his parents were poor dirt farmers and they said, you cannot play football, you can't play basketball, you can't wrestle because we can't afford to buy you new glasses. They're too expensive. And so what did, what did Truman do? He learned how to play the piano, which he was a great pianist, but he also read every book in the Independence Library because he was a voracious reader because that was what he was able to do. So Harry Truman understood history and geopolitics better than many of the people in the State Department. And he knew that, first of all, it would be good for the United States to have a presence in the Middle East, which we didn't have at that time. Mm. And second of all, he also had read through the Bible multiple times, like six or seven times, and he knew what God's Word said. You know, we talked about prophecy fulfilled. The Word of God said that these people would be regathered and that the desert would bloom. And he knew that God had said, I give unto you Uh, God speaking to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, this land as an everlasting inheritance. Mm -hmm. And he would come back to that. Now, that was not the driving force, but it was one of the parts of his consideration. And so he was trying to decide what he was going to do, uh, whether he would recognize them or not. And there was tremendous pressure. A lot of the Arabs were pressuring him. The British were pressuring him. And some of the Jewish leaders were being rude to him. And so the pressure got so great he closed his doors and said i'm not talking to anybody well the problem was the vote was about to come up in the united nations and the zionists are panicking because they don't know what truman's going to do and so they're trying to get uh, haim Wiseman to go talk to him haim Wiseman was the benjamin franklin of the zionist movement he was the one who convinced the british to do the buffalo declaration after world war one or during world war one but truman wouldn't let him in even though he liked Wiseman, he had been so offended that he wouldn't let anybody in. So the Zionists are like, what are we going to do? And then somebody said, oh, wait a second. Didn't Harry Truman have a men's clothing store and his business partner was Jewish? Oh. And his name was Eddie Jacobson. Well, they had remained. It went bankrupt in a postwar post World War One recession, but they remained like brothers. And so somebody calls up Eddie in Kansas City in the middle of the night. And says, we need you to go talk to President Truman, explain what was happening. On his own dime, Eddie flew to the White House, came in unannounced, talked to President Truman's secretary, Matt Connolly, and said, I'm here to see the the boss. And uh, Connolly said, well, that's fine. You know, he's got time right now. If you want to go in, just don't talk about Israel, uh, or not Israel. They didn't call it that at that time. Don't talk about Palestine and that whole thing with the, the Jews. And Eddie Jacobson said... That's the only reason I'm here and he turned and walked in the door of the Oval Office. This is all true and he sat down and you know they had niceties and all that and then he starts to talk about, you know, Harry, you need to see Heim Wiseman and Truman got angry and he never got angry, you know, Eddie was this gentle soul and Truman never did but for the first time he's given this, you know, cold shoulder to his best friend and Jacobson actually started tearing up. He thought, right now, my best friend is the worst anti-Semite in the world. And so he's trying to think, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And he sees a statue of Andrew Jackson because they were from Jackson County, Missouri. Okay. And and Truman, when he was a county commissioner, had put this statue in front of the courthouse. Now he had a, a little miniature in yeah. his office. And Eddie got an idea. He said, I see the statue of Andrew Jackson here, Eddie, or, or President Truman. And uh, all our lives, you told me how he's your big hero. He said, do you know who my hero is? And Truman said, no, Eddie, you've never told me that. He said, my hero is Haim Wiseman. He's an old man. He's nearly blind. He's ill. He's waiting in a hotel room in New York City to see you, but you won't see him because some of our other leaders were rude to you? That doesn't sound like you, Harry. I thought you could take the heat in this place. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so Truman turns his, swivels his chair around and looks out the window at the lawn of the White House, tapping the desk, and Eddie said, I knew I had him. <laughs> wow. And Truman turns back around and he goes, okay, you bald-headed bleepity-bleep, set up the meeting, but just don't tell anybody. So they set it up so that they snuck Wiseman in like a week later through an exit where the uh, press would not see him. And Truman uh, met with him for nearly an hour, and then they called Eddie back in, and the three of them talked for a little while after that. And later, Truman said, it was in that meeting with Wiseman and Eddie Jacobson that I made my decision to recognize the nation of Israel. Wow. So a year after the recognition, in 1949, the chief rabbi of Israel comes to visit Truman in the Oval Office. And Truman says, did you know what I did, how I was involved in the, in the rebirth of Israel? And Rabbi Herzog said, oh, yes, you were placed in your mother's womb for this purpose. And Truman's eyes filled with tears and he comes out around his desk and gets right in the face of the rabbi and he says, do you really believe that? And Herzog said, yes, like Cyrus of old, you were born so that the people of Israel could return to their homeland. Wow. So fast-forward to, you know, Truman wins a second term, he finishes it out, leaves the White House in 1953, and he's invited to speak at the Hebrew Seminary in Manhattan. And his Jewish business partner, Eddie Jacobson, is asked to introduce him. And Eddie Jacobson says, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to President Truman who helped uh, in the rebirth of Israel. And everybody claps. And Truman gets up to the lectern and he turns after the clapping stops. He turns to Eddie Jacobson. And he said, what do you mean helped? He said, I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. <laughs> and that's the name of the book. That's
1: incredible. <laughs> that is such a fascinating story. And when you understand, like you said, from a prophecy perspective, the importance of Israel being recognized. Yeah. And the, the regathering of the people in that land.
3: Yeah. And Truman was the first. It was 11 minutes after what had happened is that um, David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister and president, he held both offices in Israel, uh, he made the declaration that they were, you know, the British were leaving the mandate and at midnight that uh, the nation of Israel would come back into being after nearly 2,000 years of being out of, you know, being scattered to the nations. So at midnight... Uh, the nation became you know the it officially became the nation of Israel 11 minutes later in Washington DC and in New York at the UN they made the announcement that Harry Truman recognized the new nation of Israel and he was the first so America was the first to recognize the modern nation of Israel that's incredible so um,
1: let's just talk about history in general yeah actually before that I, two questions grant and Truman spiritually, where do you think they were at? They were
3: both uh, strong believers okay. and you know, I mean, they lived in their life and you know, they had their, their proclivities, you know, just like all of us have our weaknesses. So Grant, for example, was an alcoholic. Now back then they called him a drunkard. That mm-hmm. was the term that they used in the 19th century, which was a negative term, meaning you don't have enough character to not mess up your life. We now know it's a disease that mm. some people have that, alcohol. you know, AA calls it the alcoholics gene. Some people have that proclivity to become an alcoholic and some people don't. In families, you have one brother who is not an alcoholic and another brother who is. Uh, it's not because of character, yeah. although, you know, bad choices can lead to it but it is a disease. Yeah. So Grant uh, overcame that, a long, long period of overcoming that. But he was always a churchgoer. He was a strong Methodist, as I said earlier. Yeah. But when I was there at Point Pleasant uh, in Ohio, I was outside in the backyard and I see this bronze plaque and it said, uh, dedicated to the Huguenot ancestors of Ulysses S. Grant. Well, those were the French Protestants. And sadly, they endured a lot of persecution. A lot of them were killed uh, for standing up for biblical truth uh, when the Roman Catholic Church was, you know, the power in France. And so they got scattered to all around the world. And uh, one of the places that they ended up was Ohio, and became an ancestor of Ulysses S. Grant. So that came down into, you know, those those principles came down, and he was a uh, a man of character. I mean, again and again, you hear, you know, James Longstreet who was his friend at West Point and then became his enemy, you know, as the second in command to Robert Mm -hmm. E. Lee in the Confederate Army in the Army of the of uh, Northern Virginia. He said there was no one with higher character than Ulysses S. Grant. Wow. And so you hear that again and again. Uh, But, you know, he gave uh, sacrificially uh, to people in need. Uh, And then when he was president, there was a big Sunday school movement at that time. It would have been the 1870s and they uh, came. It was during the centennial, you know, the centennial year, 1876, yeah. Grant was president and they asked if he would give, uh, you know, make a, a speech or a message for the Sunday school movement. And he said, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing here, it's in both books or it's in the, in the leadership book. And he said, rely on the Bible and the truth of the Bible. It is the foundation of all the great civilizations of this world. Wow. You, you know, yeah. y- you don't say something like that unless yeah. you really a believer. And what about Truman? Truman had read through the Bible seven or eight times. Yeah. His mother called them Lightfoot Baptists because they were Baptists who also liked to dance. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, have a little bit of, you know, what we yeah. were talking about, the libations earlier, right? Go to the pub. Um, but, you know, he was a churchgoer and, um, and again, you know, he went back to the Bible as part of his deliberations. And, uh, you know, one of his uh, top legal advisors was a guy named Clark Clifford who then later became one of the key advisors to John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And in Clifford's book about his relationship with Truman, he said, oh yeah, we, you know, he and I love biblical prophecy. We talked about it all the time.
1: Yeah. What would, uh, and this podcast is in no way political. We stick to scripture, the gospel, Jesus. Um,
3: But what would Harry Truman say about... Democrats today? Well, I think it would be very similar to Ronald Reagan. You know, Reagan was a Democrat. His hero was FDR. Yeah. And uh, Reagan said in the early 1960s, when he made the switch to the Republican Party, he said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And I would suspect when you look at Kennedy's policies, when you look at at, uh, Truman's policies, today they'd be considered conservative. Oh, yeah. Um, And so, you know, Kennedy cut taxes. He was a Cold Warrior. Ask not. Yeah, exactly. Truman, you know, basically set the agenda Mm -hmm. along with his secretary of state, Marshall, uh, for what became policy through the entire Cold War. And it was strong, strong defense. And, you know, they believed in, you know, Truman especially believed in strong family values. So, yeah, I think he would be very sad if I were a guessing person. I mean...
1: You know, 72 genders, abortion on demand. I mean, the things that have become hallmarks of today's Democrat party are just like, man, so far away from even, shoot, even Bill Clinton in his first term was way more conservative than that. So fascinating. Well, that kind of uh, segues into just a conversation about history in general, like historical revisionism. Mm -hmm. um, We talked about the Truth Project. Like Del Tackett talks about, I can change your view of the present and of what you believe should happen in the future if I change your understanding of history. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely so we've correct. seen this in our schools, right? right. Where I'm going to revise history, which is then going to change your view of something today. So I don't have to do the work of convincing you to change your mind about this issue today. Yeah. I just have to change your mind about what happened in history and you'll automatically change your, your mind. Yeah. Um, Powerful concept. Where do we where do we go? I mean, what do we do in this t- time of just everything's up for grabs? There's well, no
3: truth. Yeah, you're speaking about the motivation for me to make this shift to doing these historical books because I want to battle that. I want to get into the marketplace of ideas wielding the truth, capital T truth. Because yeah. there's a capital T truth and then there's a lowercase t truth. God's truth is capital T truth and it's revealed in his word. That's how how then shall we live? Yeah. Charles Colson, yeah. you know, quoted from Francis Schaeffer. And uh, we need to continue to take that to the next generation to say how then will we live? Well, it's got to be based first of all on biblical revelation, which then that leads us to uphold truths of what really happened in history so that we can teach that and pass that baton on to the next generation. So for example, in I Am Cyrus, in that book, I have more than 1,200 endnotes. Yeah. Because if there's anything that is controversial and that has all kinds of prejudice against it right now, it's the modern nation of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, frankly, it's, it's anti-Semitism. That's what it is. Uh, because if you really looked at things in a balanced manner, Uh, Having no mind in the matter, you'd have a whole different viewpoint than what, uh, you know, the more liberal side has said about Israel, about the rebirth of Israel, and about Israel to this day. Are are the Jews, and is Israel perfect? No, they've made their mistakes, but they stand on the bedrock Judeo-Christian values that make them a great and an important nation. They are a democracy. Mm. They do, you know, they have Arabs who are part of the Knesset, you know, whereas almost all of the Arab nations surrounding expelled the Jews and told them, well, well you've got your nation, now go back to it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to recognize that. And then the grant book, I have 1100 endnotes notes because I wanted, you know, so going back to the I am Cyrus book, I had two goals in writing that book. One was to be able to put forth the argument of why it was just and it was right for the Jews to receive their homeland back and do it in such a way that it could be argued before the United States Supreme Court, which is why I have 1,200 footnotes and notes to back up what I say in the book. Number two was to write it in a way that hopefully is readable and people will keep turning the pages. Well, it won the CELA Award, uh, which is the top nonfiction Christian book award in the country. It was nominated by the Truman Presidential Library for the Truman Award. So I think I hit the the mark on those things. But that was my goal so that when people read it, they would say, oh, I need to re-examine this based on these facts from history.
1: Yeah. So um, news, media, historical revisionism, what advice do you have for parents who are trying to raise their kids to uh, think critically and sort through, you know, a bunch of kids are getting back on college campuses right now, all over the country. Right. They're gonna be indoctrinated with all kinds of garbage that uh, is anti-God, anti-American, and you're doing what you can in your little corner of the world to combat that. You right. said you wanna fight that right. with the truth um. what what should these parents be looking out for? What should these kids be looking out for? Yeah. What other gaps? What do, what do other people, does the Lord need to raise up to play their
3: role in combating this? Boy, that's a big question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll approach it. I think it all starts with uh, relationship. Parents, first of all, have to have their relationship right with the Lord. Then their marriage has to be solid. So they need to make sure that that's, where it needs to be because the kids are not going to listen to what they say if they are not doing it yes. in their life. Yes. And so They need to make their marriage a priority, and then they need to make the relationship with their kids a priority. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, it's a permissive type of thing. I believe in an authoritative parenting style that is also winsome. Yeah. So on the one hand, you say, this is the way we live. This is what we believe. And you teach that systematically to your children. Yeah. And you make sure that they go to you know, different programs where they do teach that. They are careful about what they're reading, what they're consuming. But also you do it in, as Chuck Colson used to say, in a winsome way, in a way where the kids are not going to be turned off, where they're going to say, you know, mom and dad care about me. We may not, I'm confused because I'm getting this message from the media, I'm getting this message from the public schools, I'm getting this message from my friends. But you know, mom and dad are saying this and the church is saying this, so I'm going to consider all these things because I trust them. I've got a relationship with them. You know, rather than hitting them over the head and saying, you know, you long-haired, tattooed, blah ba blah ba blah that's not going to work. That'll push them right into the other camp. Whereas if you have that relationship where you build the trust, they may not agree with you on everything. They may not believe what you believe, but the Bible says train up a child in the way they should Mm -hmm. go, and in the end, when they are grown, they will not depart from it. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you plant those seeds in their youth, you get them, you keep them in a good Bible-believing church, an excellent children's ministry, an excellent youth ministry, you know, with a, a youth pastor who's not just doing events. Yeah, amen. Events are part of it, to have fun and have that relationship, but teaching the Word of God. Content, exactly. substance. And then you just love them, and you show through your actions, you know, what you believe, you live out, you know, you go to the March for Life. Yeah. It might cost you a couple thousand bucks, but you go there and, and you say, kids, you want to go with me? And they may not go, but they know you're going and they know you're spending that money. Yeah. You volunteer at the local pregnancy aid center. Yeah. You raise funds for it. You uh, go out there and help them find a new washing machine when it breaks down for yeah. these unwed mothers who are deciding to keep their babies. Yeah. These are the ways that you pragmatically and practically show what you believe, yeah, because it's not enough just to be against it. You got to say, I'm for it and I'm willing to work for it. Love it. That's awesome.
1: So what other projects do you have on the horizon? I imagine you're not stopping at 14.
3: (laughs) No, we're moving forward. Uh, I have a a teaching book on writing, actually. Uh, Like I said, over the last 10 years, I've kind of made this part of my big niche. And so I've written a, a book called Telling the Truth. How to write narrative, nonfiction, and memoir. And that will be coming out from Bold Vision books either later this year or the first part of next year. Cool. Next historical book uh, I went to a place called Strong Vincent High School in Erie, Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, Strong Vincent was key, along with uh, General Governor Warren, in putting Union troops up on Little Round Top during the Battle of Gettysburg. They got in place 10 minutes before the Confederates got there, and they pushed them back. And while it wasn't the turning point in the Battle of Gettysburg, it was one of the most important turning points. There were many others, but it was one of the most important. Because had the Confederates got up onto the high ground of Little Round Top, they could have shot cannon down over the entire Union line, and who knows what could have happened? They, they could have imagined they had just lost Chancellorsville mm. a month before in a huge Confederate victory, so bad that you know Joseph Hooker got pushed out of the the leadership of the army. Mm. Now, what if they would have lost Gettysburg? Even worse, what if they would have been so crippled that they couldn't defend Washington, and all of a sudden Lee is laying siege to Washington D.C. Wow. and demanding a, its own nation. These are not beyond the realm of possibility, mm-hmm. and so it was very important what Strong Vincent did, what Governor Warren did, what Joshua La- Lawrence Chamberlain did later under Strong Vincent. But he gets a lot of the credit because of the book *Killer Angels*, which was a novel, a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, very good novel. But he was kind of the focal uh, character for Michael Shira writing that, and then later the movie *Gettysburg*, which Ted Turner uh, had, you know, helped to produce. So. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a very important figure, but he was one of six heroes that day. So he'll be one of the heroes in the book, but the book's called Standing Strong, The Heroes of Little Round Top. And That's hopefully awesome. that'll come out late next year.
1: Okay. Uh, who are some of the biographers that you read? Who, yeah. who, who, who do you like,
3: whether from way back or currently? Yeah. Ronald White, I love. He's a believer. Uh, He's uh, known primarily as a historian and a biographer, and he has written biographies of Lincoln and of Grant. Um, But one of the things, he was being interviewed by uh, General Petraeus Mm. on his podcast. Petraeus is a big history buff. He loves to read. And uh, he read Ronald White's book about Grant, and in the book he read where... After Shiloh, you know, the first day was a, a major Confederate victory. Yeah. And uh, they almost, you know, the Union almost was driven into the Tennessee. A lot of death, a lot of destruction. So Sherman is approaching Grant. You know, this is where their friendship really was solidified. And uh, Sherman was say, was thinking to say, you know, you need to retreat across the Tennessee and let's reform and figure out what we're going to do. But as he got closer to where Grant was, Grant was under this tree, It was pouring down rain, and, uh, and he thought, no, I better not say that. And so he hmm. walks into, into, under this tree and he says, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant says, yep, takes a long drag on his cigar and said, lick them tomorrow, though. And Petraeus wow. read that, and in the surge in Iraq, he made that one of their catchphrases. So every night he'd say, "Well, Lick we've had tomorrow. the devil old, devil's own old day, but what do you say, man?" And they'd say, "Lick 'em tomorrow, sir." And so uh, Ron White is is great. I'm a big fan of Doris Kearns Goodwin, who mm. wrote uh, Team of Rivals, which became the movie Lincoln. Yeah, uh, really like her stuff. One of my big heroes just passed away last week, David McCullough. Mm. You know, who I didn't wrote, know he died. Yeah, he died last week. He wrote 1776 and. John Adams and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Truman uh, biography, which won the Pulitzer Prize. So he's he's one of my favorites. And then Ron Chernow. Is McCullough's
1: John Adams the one that HBO did? That is right. That's phenomenal. Yeah,
3: And that was uh, co-produced by uh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Who was John Adams? John Adams was our second president. No, no I mean, who, who, who <laughs> he played was the, John Adams? Oh, Paul Giamatti. That's right. Yeah. He was, it was who, wonderful. Who, who was John Adams? <laughs> I thought, hmm, well, well, we'll do some you know, <laughs> remedial. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Sometimes I think people can read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh so those are some of my favorites yeah, yeah yeah and what about i mean so john adams the screenplay which i thought was phenomenal yeah the, the miniseries the hbo miniseries mm-hmm. what other what other things on film do you like historically do you feel i mean yeah. you know lay people like me we could get sucked in by anything that is entertaining right with no knowledge of whether it's historically accurate or not right
3: yeah you mentioned lincoln Lincoln is actually one of the most accurate films that has ever been made mm-hmm. Spielberg and Tony Kushner who had adapted the book really were working to make sure that it was on target and so there's actually a, a podcast that I, I follow um, that is uh, always talks about the historicity of the films and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, history buffs history buffs that's what it's called okay love that podcast And, uh, you know, he says, well, you know, Lincoln's way up there. He also uh, highly recommends Master and Commander, you know, the Russell Mm. uh, Crowe Navy film from the Napoleonic Wars. He said it's very accurate. Uh, He recommends Waterloo. Uh, the movie from the early '70s and says it's accurate. He does not recommend things like Braveheart as, ah, as much. I knew, I knew yeah, it. <laughs> as much as it was a wonderful film, he said historically it's got all kinds of uh, holes. Also, another Mel Gibson piece uh, was the um, the uh, Patriot. He said, oh, "It's full of all kinds of, of inaccuracies." Bad. Now there is, there are historical things in it. So when I was living in South Carolina, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, you know the Charlotte Metro bleeds over into South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was living about a half hour south of the city, and uh, one day I'm driving down the road and I see this big state, you know, historical marker about um, this massacre that happened in the Revolutionary War. So, you know, being the history guy, I pull over and I read this, and here it was this colonel uh, of the uh, British, after the fall of Charleston, he was chasing the American um, militia as they were trying to get away, and he caught up to them in Buford, South Carolina, and caused what was called Buford's Massacre. Mm. Well, this guy's name was Tarlington, And in the movie, they called him uh, Tarrington. And he was the bad guy. Mm. But that bad guy was based primarily on this real historical figure who did this massacre. There's mass graves of these uh, American militiamen who had come down from Virginia and North Carolina, and they got massacred just over the border as they were trying to get away. Wow. Yeah, so there is truth in these movies, but there's also some literary license. Yeah. Yeah, but my son and I are working to adapt the Grant book. Uh, Victor into a 10-part TV miniseries. Sweet. Yeah, so my son graduated from the film school at Regent University, my alma mater. Wow. And so he and I, uh, we've been working on the outline, I've written the pilot, and uh, we're getting ready to write a couple more uh, episodes, put together the story bible. And then pitch it. So, so where do you want to have that show up? Netflix uh, or where you you know whoever's going to pay the bills yeah. <laughs> and give it a good showing? But you know it could be Netflix, it could be the History Channel. We'll see. That's awesome. Yeah. If any of you are listening, you know vonbusiek. dot com, v o n b u s e c k. dot com.
1: <laughs> I was just getting ready to ask you and shut this down. Um, how can people follow you? And how can they get a hold of your books? How do they follow you on yeah. social media?
3: Yeah, oh, so. well, the, you know, I just told you the the website, com, which is my last name, V-O-N-B-U-S-E-C-K dot com. Uh, all my books are available wherever books are sold, and you could get them all on Amazon. Uh, and then as far as social media, I'm on, you know, you name it, I'm on it. So I've got my own YouTube channel. In fact, I have a, a podcast that uh, I'm getting ready to gear back up. I did a year's worth of episodes. It's called Stories and Myths. And so it tells interesting, evocative, uh, sometimes controversial stories from history, and then it tries to debunk the myths. So that is out there on YouTube. Just put my name in, Craig Von Buzik, and it'll come up, or Stories and Myths. And then, uh, of course, I'm on, you know, all the rest, Facebook, Instagram, and, and yeah. All that podcast sounds awesome. How, how often do you drop episodes? I was doing it once a week, and I'm gonna gear back up to, to do that once a week, or if I'm in a place like tomorrow, i'm going a block and a half away to mary lincoln's house you know mary todd Here? was born and raised a block and a half from where we're sitting what and so i'm going there tomorrow and i'm going to do a podcast that's awesome <laughs> yeah and it's like a historical place you can go that's visit. her
1: home where she grew up i mean it's open it's
3: yeah i don't know what the hours are i may not be able to get in but i'm hoping i will that is you know, way. because cool. i got to do my job for first part of the day and then at lunch i'm zipping over there that woman was not a nice woman, was she? Uh, she was a genius. She was politically amazing. She kind of was, Would you know, back then they didn't really want to hear from the women very much right. when it was pol- dealing with politics. But she would sit at the table with her dad and her, all of his friends and listen. And every once in a while she'd do a zinger. And they'd look at her like, how do you get so smart? And so she, one of the reasons that Lincoln became president is he had this amazing partner who really understood people and really understood politics. Mm. Uh, but she also had some things not quite right mentally. Uh, I've heard a lot of different uh, potential reasons and diagnoses. Some people thought that she may have had borderline personality disorder or bipolar. Who knows, we can't tell that. Yeah. But there were times where she truly embarrassed Lincoln. And she really made Julia Grant angry Uh, up there uh, outside of Petersburg, but that very well may have saved Ulysses' life because on the night of the assassination, Lincoln invited the Grants to go be with him, but because Mary had ticked off Julia, Julie said, I'm not going to a theater with that lady, and it could have saved Grant's life. Wow. Yeah, true story.
1: Craig Von Buzik, thanks for your time. Thank you, Matt. And we'll be excited to follow I'm really excited about that podcast. It sounds really cool. Cool. Yeah, check it out. Hopefully it works out tomorrow
3: over at Mary Todd's. Oh, we're going to go. I'll do a podcast whether I get in or not. Awesome. (laughs) All right, Matt. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care.
0: 7401 University Avenue Cedar Falls, Iowa 50613 In addition to our other podcasts which I mentioned at the front of this episode I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's Word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number two, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links, and remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you, and thanks again for listening.